Welcome to Job Title, where we dive into exactly that, the stories and experiences of real people with all kinds of job titles. In this episode, I sit down with Ryan, who is a meteorologist for the Climate Prediction Center in Washington, D.C. I know people love to talk about the weather. We talk about it all the time. It's a go-to small talk. But for Ryan, he is a true weather nerd who really loves his job and also really loves talking about the weather. He gets to have a blend of working from home and the office and has varied responsibilities that will probably go beyond what you initially think of when you hear the word meteorologist. Listen now for a window into this job title. Welcome back, everyone. This is Heidi Nykamp, your host of Job Title. And today I am joined by Ryan. And Ryan has been working towards getting the job that he now holds for a long time. And I'm excited to have him on today to share what that job title is. Thanks for being here, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to see you again. Yeah. So before we jump into what your current job title is, the tradition here is to start out by asking one of those childhood dream jobs that you had. So what was something you thought of being when you were a kid? Uh, So one of the the jobs that I always dreamed of being um, was a meteorologist. Uh, Specifically, I was always looking to be a hurricane hunter. Growing up, I would watch the Weather Channel. um, And one of the times was in 2005 with Hurricane Katrina coming through and all of these massive hurricanes. And so uh, watching the hurricane, watching the weather channel and watching the hurricane hunters data come in and all that sort of stuff and all the little tidbits and information that they gave was always very interesting to me. Um, And so that was something that I always dreamed of being. So big transition here. What is your current job title? Well, I actually, I managed to become a meteorologist uh, not exactly a tropical meteorologist, but I am a meteorologist with the National Weather Service uh, at the, U- the United States government. Uh, specifically, I'm at the Climate Prediction Center, which is one of the national centers for uh, the, the weather service. So I feel like a lot of people might have this assumption of what it's like to be a meteorologist, maybe based on things like watching the local news or the weather channel like you did growing up. But in a nutshell, what does what does it look like for you to be a meteorologist? So I really have two different uh, days, if you will, two different types of jobs. So the, the first job is is more of that traditional meteorologist role that you would expect to be seen, um, not, on, not on TV, um, but uh, in the backgrounds, we're bringing in data, we're bringing in information. And then at the National Weather Service, we are making the forecasts that go out um, to the entire country that lots of local weather service offices use, but also all of the uh, TV stations will use a lot of our information uh, to base their forecasts off of, and then they will disseminate that, provide that information to people via the television or via radio or any other of these other options uh, for communication about the weather these days. Uh, There's a lot of information that comes through Twitter, it comes through Facebook, um, and that sort of stuff to the general public these days. 
Gotcha. Yeah. So a lot, a lot of data and a lot of then communicating that data. Before we jump into all of the the ins and outs of your job, what kind of experience did you have um, going into becoming a meteorologist, like educational background, maybe internships or research? Yeah. So I, in, in high school, it started off <laughs> starting from high school. It, it really did start with um, taking more physics classes, taking more math classes, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, uh, trying to get that baseline knowledge of even just basic algebra um, and basic calculus um, and basic physics is really important starting even in high school. Um, and then in college, um, I, I went to school to be an atmospheric and oceanic science uh, major. That was my that was my undergrad degree. So I went and did that. And that degree is very math focused to the extent that you're doing the same entry-level courses as an engineer would be taking. So I took Introduction to Engineering, Mathematics, uh, you know, and Physics as well. We took the same courses as the engineers there um, for the first couple of years, really. Um, and then by your junior and senior year, you're really taking a lot more classes that are more specifically focused in atmospheric science, um, which means that you're focusing on physics on a rotating sphere and fluid dynamics on a rotating sphere in particular. And if you know more about engineering and physics and stuff like that, then you know that fluid dynamics isn't the easiest course in existence. And then when you throw down a rotating sphere, it adds a whole other layer of complexity to the whole uh, situation going on up there in the atmosphere. So I did that. I got my degree in atmospheric and oceanic science. Uh, I got a minor in geographic information systems, which is which was extremely useful. Honestly, it's what got me my job initially at CPC. Once I got that, I, I went and I got a master's degree from the University of Maryland as well for atmospheric and oceanic science. <laughs> a master's as well there, but. Uh, Along the way, I had a whole bunch of different internships as well. Um, it was one of the main reasons I went out to the University of Maryland from uh, growing up in West Michigan. So I knew that all of the government agencies out here would provide uh, good opportunities for internships. And um, every every summer between sophomore um, and junior year on through, um, I had three or four different internships. Wow. Yeah, that's a, a big thing that can change the trajectory of your career is just the experiences you get in college, both to affirm if it's the right thing and just get that experience to build up your resume um, and make those connections. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing I will say about that is that all of my internships were heavily research uh, focused um, and somehow I ended up in operations. So for me, it really taught me that I wasn't going to be a great researcher. I found some of the stuff interesting, but I didn't find doing new and novel things and finding and creating new ideas of that sort of thing to be interesting to me. I found the communication of the science to be much more interesting. Mm, that is interesting. It's good to have dipped your toe into the that field just to, mm -hmm. to know that that's not exactly where you wanted to end up. What were some of those projects that you worked on in your undergrad research? Yeah, so um, one of the one of the first ones was um, 
wasn't even really doing too much atmospheric science. It was looking at how tree shade um, affects energy savings. So I was doing some very basic level research on just, you know, what happens when a tree is cut down um, to the energy usage and certain properties um, compared to when that tree was there previously. Um, mm-hmm. So that was that was an interesting project. Um, and then really the, the meat of my internship experience in undergrad was uh, doing a, a doing a project um, that looked at wildfire plumes or volcanic plumes even um, and seeing how how high into the atmosphere those got via satellite so I did I did a big research project on um, what the impact of how high those plumes got into the atmosphere and then the surrounding weather patterns that they were experiencing at that time and how that impacted air pollution nearby the wildfires, but also far away from the wildfires. Um, mm-hmm. So there were there were several wildfires that I looked at in particular, some in California, one in um, uh, Canada. I looked at the weather patterns and I saw that, you know, it was the smoke was being transported way downstream um, and then it was being pushed down towards the surface via different weather patterns. That was my that was my senior capstone project. Um, in fact, was just looking at some of those that stuff uh, and uh, trying to figure out what what, what was happening there. <laughs> How do you obtain that type of data? This might be a rabbit trail, but I've always like you you're doing this research. Who's acquiring the data, and how does it end up with the researcher? So the satellite data was originally from a satellite called um, MISER, um, which is the, oof, it's been a while, but it's the multi-angle imaging spectroradiometer. Um, so it would take uh, photos or take satellite or images at different points uh, going forward. Um, and then it would progress further down. It would take a photo back going down. And then as it was coming back around, it would take another photo, you know, another similar set of photos coming back the other way. Um, so you could get uh, the height profile of that, of the, the plume. So that was, that's, that satellite information was coming from NASA. And uh, so it was all on, it was actually all on a um, FTP server. Um, so all we had to do was, uh, download that data into uh, one of the computer systems at school. And then uh, the EPA provides uh, air quality sensor, has an air quality sensor network that uh, has very good coverage over most of the country. Um, and so I utilized that to get the air quality data at the surface. And then, of course, uh, NOAA National Weather Service has all of the weather data um, gotcha. And you know, atmospheric profiles and all of that good stuff uh, over time. Uh, you know, yeah, we, we have weather data that goes back to the 1950s. So yeah, gotcha. Okay, so that pieces together some of those things that are have been missing in my brain of you do this research, but where is the information even coming from, and how do you research it if you don't get the data, and where how to how does it all connect? But Yes. So the the EPA has great, has a great data set. It's all online. Um, And then the National Centers for Environmental Information has a very long historical record of weather data. Gotcha. So were were your internships through your school then? And was it easy to find them? One of them. So this final project that I just described was uh, through the school. 
Um, and uh, it really came to me because I had good contacts with one of the professors at, at school and they were looking for two students uh, to be able to do some very manual um, grunt work of just like literally outlining plumes um, in a, in a uh, GUI interface, um, graphical user interface, uh, and to do that and outline those suckers. And then uh, working with them, I was able to continue uh, doing research with them. And then I was working with a, actually a fairly senior uh, NASA research scientist as well, who had been doing stuff with the Miser satellite for decades. That's incredible to have those connections Yes, and make sense for why you would choose a school and a program where those resources are readily available. When you were looking for schools, were there many places that offered the major you were hoping for? No, uh, I, I think if I remember correctly, it was like 40 or 50 schools that actually have a meteorology degree. Um, so the, in the in the state of Michigan, there are two schools that actually act, offer a meteorology degree, which is the University of Michigan, which is a prestigious program, uh, and um, also Central Michigan University, which has a program that is very focused on broadcast meteorology. And that's what you would expect for your person on TV? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Sorry. Yeah. That makes sense. You mentioned uh, having a minor in GIS. Can you explain a little bit more what that is? And um, you had an internship in GIS as well, or a job? Yeah. So uh, I, my first, in, one of my first internships was uh, GIS related. Um, and then using that internship, I was actually able to kind of facilitate that into getting a GIS position at, at the Climate Prediction Center as my entry level um, position before I could move up to being a full federal employee at meteorologist. So GIS is a way to put a whole bunch of different geographic information together into a single system where it can be visualized and utilized to provide better information and uh, describe uh, different ideas, different research topics, different uh, visualizations. Um, so, so one example might be that you have a list of grocery stores and you know um, where they are on the globe. So latitude and longitude, you have that information. You also have their street data and you can combine all of that together. And then you can also bring in population data from the US Census Service. And then you can figure out how many people are living around a grocery store, for example. Um, so you can just, you can know how many people are living there, how many people may be going there to that single grocery store. You can also figure out where there might be an untapped market because you have that population data. You, you see that there's nobody living, there's no grocery stores that are near where all of those people are living um, and stuff like that. Um, so for my internship where I was doing that with, with trees, um, we, were, we were plotting where all of these houses were um, when we were taking in also tree data for where trees were cut down. And then 
we would look and we would look at energy bills for houses that had a tree cut down uh, that were previously shaded. And so all of that was really done using GIS, um, geographic information systems, utilizing all of that geographic information, utilizing address data. Um, literally, it's it's called geocoding um, when you're plotting the ge- latitude and longitude next to the the address data that you would have from like uh, an energy service provider. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that was kind of my first experience with GIS. And using that experience, I, I used that experience in my master's research. And then I, I also used my GIS experience uh, in uh, my first couple of years at the, the Climate Prediction Center, helping to facilitate the transition from a older version of ArcGIS uh, to a newer version of ArcGIS. Yeah. So yeah. It, it ended up leading you to your current job because it got your foot in the door, made that connection. And so... You are a meteorologist now with the CPC, and let's jump into what your days look like as a meteorologist. So you mentioned having two different types of days, a forecast day and a development day. We'll start with the forecast day. What's what's that look like? Yeah, so a, a forecast day for me these days is I end up going into the office here, which is uh, in College Park, Maryland. And uh, I, it's it's a fairly nice office overall, um, but I go in um, and I get my day started by looking at some of uh, the current weather data. Um, so just going in and seeing what's happening around the country today. Um, and then I'll look at um, kind of what the forecast was uh, from yesterday um, and see see where we're starting from. Um, and then I'll uh, I'll get in and I'll look at today's current model data, um, the most recent runs of information for what uh, several different uh, weather models are forecasting. For some background on that, there's really we at CPC we look at about three main models um, for the leads that I forecast, which are um, the six to ten day forecast. And then also the eight to 14 day um, week two forecast. So that's not this week, uh, but next week. Um, so I do that and I'll look at those, I'll look at those uh, models. Um, and each of those models is usually slightly different in their uh, forecast um, because they have slightly different initial conditions because they're bringing in different information from each other. They'll, they'll have slightly different physics parameters because we don't actually have a full actual understanding of every single physics parameter on the uh, uh, on the globe because you would have to what? know every single molecule in order to understand it all. Meteorologists don't know everything? Crazy. About the weather? Oh, crazy. <laughs> wish we did. I wish we did. <laughs> Um, That's why there's percentages. <laughs> exactly. Uh, especially at our leads. Uh, um, so, yeah, I, I try and bring in all of that information together um, and I, I put it all together and I try and figure out um, kind of what my initial first guess would be based off of today's weather and also you know, yesterday's weather, what kind of the models are showing me. Um, and then by about uh, nine. 10 o'clock, we have an auto blend that comes in 
Um, and that provides us really our first guess at what the 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 forecast should be for the next week. Um, right. And that and that that auto blend, we make edits off of that based off of what we're seeing, what we kind of have seen from model biases, um, because sometimes uh, a model will get a little too gung ho about uh, a feedback loop, for example. Um, so this summer, the the American model had uh, some trouble understanding the drought conditions in the Midwest. Um, it overdid it. It kept saying it's going to be much warmer than normal when really it was more closer to normal conditions. Um, and it, it had that at all of the different forecast time leads. Mm. Uh, so it was a very interesting, interesting year to try and forecast in the Midwest because you were relying only on one model, uh, you know, one less model than you normally would. Are um, these tools, like the models that you use, something that you learned about in college? Or is it like on the job training, getting familiar with them? Is there a learning curve? There's a learning curve to it. Um, but there, it's also one of those things that as a weather nerd, you just start picking up. When you're in, when I was an undergrad, I was a part of the American Meteorological Society's student chapter at the University of Maryland. And as you might expect, we like to go and we like to talk about weather. We would like to look at all the different model runs. We would all find the best, you know, websites for looking at all of the model data, uh, which is tropical tidbits. Um, <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> uh, but uh, overall, it was it was all good stuff. Uh, just like slowly picking it up over time. Um, and then, you know, once I got to my job, it was also just something that I picked up as I was listening to our forecast discussions, which we have every day at one o'clock. And that's where, you know, you talk about what the different models are showing. You're talking about um, what you're what you're seeing, which way you're leaning towards on specific models, because, you know, something's just something feels more consistent with something with uh, the American model versus the European model, which is all over the place, which never actually happens. The European model is much better than the American model, <laughs> but mm, I digress. <laughs> no, they're, they're all good models and they all have their different strengths and their weaknesses. Um, but um, yeah, so that's kind of what we do. And then uh, um yeah, the 1 p.m. and then we disseminate that information usually by about three or four in, in the afternoon. We use GIS uh, to produce maps um, that go onto the CPC's website. Um, and then we also send that out to a, a computer program called AWIPS, which uh, is what meteorologists use across the entire country to um, uh, help facilitate their, their forecast discussions and also their forecasts. Mm -hmm. When you're working on these forecast days, a side note, working with these models sounds like learning a new relationship, <laughs> like yep. the nuance of it, it all, <laughs> which is a gift to be able to navigate through all of that with something that is not human. Um, <laughs> so that's impressive to me. When you're working on a forecast is, and you're working on your own, are you in charge of a certain area or how does that work to to build the forecast? So at the Climate Prediction Center, we forecast for the entire country. So our forecast domain is the whole United States, CONUS, Alaska, and Hawaii now. Um, so 
we we finally are forecasting for Hawaii. Um, all 50 states. All 50 states. We finally got there, folks. <laughs> um, as the forecaster, I'm forecasting for all of those regions. If you go to a uh, local forecast office, um, and there's uh, over 150 of those at least um, scattered across the country, they are focused on the specific region that they are in. Um, and they will make much more detailed focus or for much more detailed forecasts for their local area. And so they have a more intimate knowledge of the area. They have a more, they have better connections with uh, TV personalities that will be able to help disseminate that information uh, in in better ways uh, than necessarily what the National Weather Service is allowed to do. That makes sense. So you're not solely forecasting necessarily because it's not something you do every day, but you do have that 1 p.m. standing forecast meeting. How many people are coming together at that meeting? Yeah, yeah. so at CPC, we have um, usually about 20 people um, come to this forecast meeting, um, and, and you'll get people from all over the country that really join. Um, so we have usually have somebody that comes in from Western region, um, which they're based in Salt Lake City, um, and they, uh, the Western region, you know, it, it covers most of the continental uh, Western United States, west of the Rocky Mountains. Um, we'll get people from the Midwest that'll join, and we'll also get people from Alaska that'll join. Um, I think the Alaska people just like um, uh, remind us all down here in Washington, D.C., that we they do exist up there and the weather forecasts really do matter for them. Um, and the weather in Alaska is so different uh, than anywhere else in the country that it's really helpful to have that local perspective come in. Who And the, the folks that join from Alaska really know their stuff up there, uh, just like all of the different local variabilities and all that sort of stuff that it's very helpful to be able to have all of the Alaska people join. Yeah, that totally makes sense to have yeah. uh, a good collaborative piece to the job, especially because it's impacting so many people. And we appreciate that they get up so early to join our 1 p.m. I didn't even think of that. That's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, I think it's about eight in the morning there um, when they're yeah. actually joining. So, wow. Yeah. One day we'll get Guam to join, but that won't be for a while. So once your forecast is decided upon at that three or four o'clock hour, is that when your workday is done then on a forecast day? Uh, usually, um, unless I have just some other little odds and ends that I want to uh, pick up uh, and, and clean up uh, from some of my other projects that I'm working on, which is my day number two, um, if you will. So uh, my my other days uh, are spent mostly in my in my home here. I've worked from home uh, most of the most of the time, really, um, and then, uh, which is really nice. But uh, on those days, I am generally coding in in the uh, computer programming language Python, um, and building new tools and potentially sometimes websites um, to help create better forecasts or help create better ways to disseminate that forecast. A lot of those are developmental projects, um, which half the time they never see the light of day. We're just working on different things that'll help our own forecasters make better forecasts. So that way you can, uh, you know, potentially see better skill in those forecasts. But other times um, we create new new web pages 
um, that will help disseminate per se Hawaii information out out to the world um, with uh, more information, more detail, um, and better forecasts. Hopefully, um, doing those sorts of things. It's always a, a work in progress, and I feel like that is maybe the piece that most people don't know about, especially when your only context is the local news channel. (laughs) Exactly. And your finicky relationship with what they might say. (laughs) Right. And I think people forget that it's really hard to uh, predict the future. (laughs) It's, it's not easy to, and we've only been even halfway decent at this for 50 years. And it's incredible to think about for how many, millennia humans have been living on this planet without any information about the weather, what the weather will be like tomorrow. Um, and here we are at the Climate Prediction Center and we're providing forecasts, not only for next week, but also for next month, um, at the next season, the next three months, um, all the way out to a year of actually providing forecasts that have some utility um, to a lot of different people and a lot of different folks. Um, it's it's really incredible how we're how well we're progressing, really, how quickly these mm-hmm. weather forecasts are improving, even if we do wish they would improve much faster. I feel like the average person is only thinking about like their own agenda when it comes to the weather, how it's going to affect their specific day, but really it's affecting farmers and transportation and I mean cultures as a whole because of some of the extreme things that we're seeing with the changes in our climate so it's huge what you're doing in the development days even when it's not as widely understood yeah and you know some of some of these things are as simple as you know we need a new verification scheme uh for our forecasts um, because if you can verify, if you know how your forecast is verifying, you're able to create a better forecast because you know where it went wrong previously. So there are just so many different things where it's like even a bad forecast can be useful going forward. Yeah. Do you have any examples of a project that you've worked on on development days? Um, so so one of my projects that I've worked on was uh, providing new web pages for a a, a drought web page uh, and drought web tools. Um, so what I did was I combined a whole bunch of information from a whole bunch of different places across uh, the National Weather Service. And I utilized both Python and GIS systems in order to display that information better, to provide all of those tools that our forecasters are using and putting all of those uh, forecasts out on to, or all those forecast tools out on to uh, a, a website that we have on linked from the climate predictions uh, homepage. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, so all of that information that we're using is also available to the public um, because the National Weather Service is a government organization, and all of that information is shared widely and wholly with anybody who actually wants to use it. It, it was a really, it was a really interesting project because. I got to utilize a whole bunch of different skills um, and a whole bunch of different tools that I hadn't used before. So things like um, I created new charts 
<laughs> which sounds so basic and so easy, but it was something I had never done before. Um, so I got to learn something new for how to create better visualization with Google, uh, with Google charts, honestly. It's coming through a Google uh, programming interface. And so I was able to use that and figure out how to show this information better. Um, I was able to use um, a GIS tool from a company called Esri um, in order to display all of the information on, on the web um, using their one of their web portals as well. So all of that information is living um, on uh, the NOAA Geo platform. So it's all on there and then you can download it. Um, and then I also, you know, just put it all together into a nice little web page. It, it was a fun project um, to do a whole bunch of different things with. Uh, it was cool. So. Yeah. Yeah. That requires a lot of adaptability in learning all of those different systems and how to make it work together. And I know you mentioned that you also code in these development days and I'm guessing part of this process. Yes. Uh, so all of all of these processes are completely automated. Um, so I, I download a whole bunch of different data automatically um, using the code. It's on a scheduled task. It runs uh, twice a month at, after we've released our monthly and seasonal drought outlooks. And so I download, uh, you know, reservoir data from places out west. Um, I download snow data. I download other weather data. Um, and I try and put it all into one place. Um, and then I overlay um, a whole bunch of information on our drought outlooks. So things like how many acres of corn are being grown um, in an area that is forecast to see drought development um, in the next month or the next three months. So trying to communicate that there are potential in what the potential impacts are mm -hmm. um, from the drought outlook and the tools that we're using to create those drought outlooks. But all of that, yeah, all of that is off fully automated, including sending it to the web, which took more time for me to figure out than I would like to, would have wanted it to, but it finally all worked together properly. But yeah, I, on, a, on a good month, I don't have to touch it. <laughs> nice. On a bad month, I get frustrated. But it, <laughs> because most, of the code. Yes. Um, Coding is this whole big world. It's, and it's, it's like learning a new language, right? Yeah. Um, so it, coding has its own uh, syntax. It has its own, um, like, every, every coding language has its own syntax, has its own little unique little clips and tidbits and everything else like that um, that go, uh, that make it more or less useful to certain people and for certain tasks. My coding experience is in Python, um, which is one of the newer languages. And I say that hesitantly because Python's been around for like 15, 20 years now. But when we're still using uh, Fortran, which was developed in the 80s, uh, if not before that, uh, I think it got updated in the 80s. Um, at CPC, Python is a newer language that we're still trying to convince people to use at CPC. Uh, but it's an open source language. Um, so it's, uh, it's more available to people that don't have the large budgets that certain, you know, tech companies like Google and uh, Facebook use, they largely use their own computer programming languages to some extent. They developed some of their own syntax and everything else like that, that they felt would be easier. 
um, based off of older languages, but they developed some of their own new stuff as well. Um, but Python's very open source. It's very easy to use. Uh, it's very clear, at least to me, after using it for five years. Um, but uh, it, yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty good language uh, for the scientific community to be using, um, and a lot of people understand it. Yeah, it is a lot more widespread than I think I initially realized. Um, I know that there's like clubs at high school for learning how to code. And I mean, they're learning younger and younger because it is integrated in so many different fields like meteorology. Yeah, I mean, uh, meteorology, even even things as, you know, diverse as economics, they they use a certain type of code all, all the time to run their models so if you're if you're running a model you're usually running it in, with code so yeah i think my only places. coding experience was in a high school math class where i had to code to animate something that i came up with and my animation was really terrible but i think that is my, my only coding experience yeah I, <laughs> And that's a whole sounds much more of, sophisticated. That's a much different type of coding than I use here. So <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> Everything I use is on the back end. So are there any other parts to your development day that we've missed? Not really. Um, it's it's largely just me hanging out and trying to code and being creative, um, which I guess is a good thing for my creative outlets. But uh, yeah, it's a different it's I am not a natural coder um it took a lot of patience for me to actually learn it um, and it probably takes me a little bit longer um to do this sort of thing than other people uh, because I simply have to think about it a lot more than a lot of other folks um I have to I I don't I am not a good memorizer when it comes to these sorts of things I I I have a brain for finding things. I, I can do mental maps really well, um, but I am not a good memorizer. So I know where to find things in order to you know, utilize them, but I am not very good at just rote memorization. Gotcha. Yep. So between forecast and development days, how many in a week would you be doing one or the other? So I generally forecast two to three days every two weeks this is generally how I, I I see it at this point um maybe it might be a little bit more than that yet um forecasting but yeah about about two-thirds of my time is spent coding and about a third of my time is spent forecasting at this point and that largely impacts whether you're in the office or you're working from home correct yep okay is that a pretty standard expectation for like working from home? Is that what other people in your position have as well for their setup? Yeah, so very few of us actually want to go into the office anymore, um, as far as I can tell, because none of us are going into the office unless we absolutely have to. At, at CPC, we've got a, a an agreement through our union that we can work from home eight out of 10 days, um, a pay period. Um, and so that's... Uh, Roughly what I, I end up doing most of the time is uh, I get my eight days from home and go into the office two days. Um, usually it's two days in one week as I'm doing my forecast. And then I stay at work at home for the entire 
next week sort of situation. What is the workspace like when you do go in? It's a cubicle farm. It's the best way to describe it is just a cubicle farm. Um, yeah. Is it pretty uh, empty and, then? Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. There's probably on any given day, there's maybe 20 people in the whole office that used to sit 150. Wow. On the one hand, it's nice that it's quiet. On the other hand, it completely reduces the you know utility of going into the office because there's nobody there to communicate with. So you're literally just going into the office for the sake of going into the office rather than, you know, the things that they think you're going to be doing there, which is collaborating with your colleagues because nobody's going into the office on any given day. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah. When you are working at home, is it like a multi-monitor setup? Like what's your workspace like at home? I have a fairly simple setup. Um, I have a monitor and then I have my um, work lap, my work provided laptop. Um that sits next to me here. So I'm, I'm able to do two screens, um, which is good for when I'm, you know, looking up information for my code and stuff like that. So that, that works pretty well for me. Um, but uh, I work right next to my wife um, where our desks are right next to each other, which I feel like is a very weird situation for most people. Um, but it is one that we really appreciate because it means that we actually get to work with the person we actually appreciate rather than um, working next to, you know, people we didn't choose to be, spend our lives with. Yeah. Yep. That is fun that you're able to do that. Yeah. Both because of what your job is and the space and that she can work from home too. And yeah, that yeah. is really cool. It's it's a good setup that, that makes, you know, lunches a lot easier. Uh, you get to go have really good lunches on a, on a most on a near daily basis. Um, it's always warm having a kitchen is, is great. So yeah. Yep. Yeah. That is fun. And working from home, does it allow for some flexibility or are you pretty much working the same hours every day? It does allow for some flexibility. Um, I am one of those people that would much prefer to just get my job done. Um, so I try and get my day started at around seven 30. Um, so I can be done at four o'clock. So that way when the sun sets at four 45, I still have at least, you know, half an hour to go outside and get a little daylight in my eyes before uh, night promptly falls. So for me, for me, I like to get started on time. Um, and I generally try and stay on um, those current hours. Um, yeah. Having consistency can be really nice when yes. you're able to. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and when you uh, have the work environment you like, that just makes the job all the much better. Are there other things about your job that you particularly enjoy? Oh, I just, I just appreciate everything that it allows me to do. Um, you know, I, I've, I've been working for so long to get this job and um, it, it's, it's really great to just be a part of the weather community, to be able to do all these different things with it. But I also love that I also have two different types of days where I can, I get that break uh, from, you know, coding on a daily basis where I get to go and forecast. Uh, but I also realized that if I had to forecast every day, I think I would get really tired and really sick of it. So it's really great to have uh, a diversity of different things that I get to do and a diversity of different development projects where, so, you know, when one day is, is you know, I'm getting really sick and tired of developing a new database, I'm able to go and work on a, on a new web page or something like that instead. So um, there's just a lot of things that we're working on 
And that's really great about this job is that there's just a lot of different things that I can poke a finger in and be like, hey, I'd like to be able to try and do something with that. And that's really cool. That's good. It's nice to have that ability for some agency and like participation in a way that utilizes all of your many skills that are very detail oriented and math oriented and, and all of those things that is, it's not everyone's gift. Yeah. And I, I don't have, I don't have a boss that's overbearing on top of me demanding that things are going to be done stat. Like my, my boss understands that, you know, development takes time. If you want it done right, it's going to just take a little bit of time um, in order to do it properly, work out all the different kinks and everything else like that. So no, it's, it's a very good environment to work in. Um, And at the end of the day, I get to close my laptop and I get to go downstairs and my day is done. I don't have to think about it until 7.30 the next morning. Uh, Nobody, nobody's uh, working for the government is great. And that nobody's asking you to do any more work than is required. So yeah, yeah. it it is nice to turn things off and just have the rest of your day be the rest of your day and know that you've put in a good day of work and it's a fantastic work-life balance yeah that's fantastic balance that's a very healthy thing that is what people should be looking for but can be hard too yes yeah I, i totally understand that not everybody can do it uh but i really really appreciate that i'm in a position where i can do it yeah I just very thankful that I'm here. I'm so glad that after all those years working towards getting that job, you have it and you do love it. That's, that is a gift in and of itself. Is there anything that you would consider a realistic challenge about your job? One of the things is I am not a natural coder (laughs) and I have to code on a daily basis. Um, that's one of those things where it's just like, oh man, it, it takes a lot of energy out of me. But um, on the other hand, I am able to do, I'm able to get it done and I'm able to work through it. And uh, yeah, it's good. So for the most part, I really just appreciate this job. That's incredible. And that's yep. great. You don't have to have any other <laughs> uh, yep. things come to mind. Oh, yep. so for people who might be interested in pursuing meteorology or becoming a meteorologist, what advice do you have for them? Do your maths well. It'll it'll you'll learn a lot and make your life much easier going through school if you are good at math, good at physics, have a good understanding of all of that sort of stuff. Um, you won't use your math nearly as much once you're in the field as you think you will once when you're in school and what the professors are telling you you're going to be doing, but you, it is useful in, in order to get to the position where you want to be in. Uh, other than that, I think that internships are the best way to go. Um, go to a place where you can find good internships because that's where you're going to learn more than anything else, uh, more than you're going to learn in school, more than you're going it, to, it'll help you figure out what you like to do. Um, and in internships, they're going to help facilitate and give you ways to try different things to uh, see what you actually really like um, and go from there. So that's great. Yeah. yeah. I feel like there might be a lot of weather nerds out there that 
might be intimidated by like going into the field or maybe only think of what they see on TV and not what other types of meteorology really look like. Um, so that's, yeah, that's helpful to know just the, the wide array of things that are out there and experiences and it can take on many forms, um, like you experienced throughout your time in undergrad and in leading up to this job too. Right. Yeah. There's just, yeah, there's so many different places where you can go in the weather community uh, from even, you know, there's the broadcast meteorologists, there's people in the National Weather Service doing uh, short-term forecasts. There's people at the national centers doing stuff like CPC or the Weather Prediction Center where you're forecasting for the entire country on a much more broad scale. There's places like insurance companies that are you know, looking at longer-term information to decide what insurance premiums are going to look like this year in, in Florida because you know this year is going to be a big year for hurricanes potentially or something like that where the insurance companies may be like you know what we need to we need to uh, adjust our risk profile down here in Florida so yeah there's a lot of different places where you can take it including research yeah. um, and I, I a lot of people really really love research and I give them props for you know, going and trying and finding new and novel techniques and new and novel ideas and all of these different things um, that are really, really important uh, to helping push our understanding of the weather, our understanding of the climate system further. Yeah. Thank you for bringing up so many different possibilities of what it could look like to be involved in the weather community and the impact that it has on literally everyone. Yeah, uh, it's one of those things where you feel like you're 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 really making a big impact um, because it's something that everybody talks about on a daily basis. Like people are always talking about the weather, um, and unfortunately for some people, they bring up weather to the wrong person. How do you mean? Um, and they get into a nice long spiel about you know, yeah, this year we're just not going to get any snow here in Maryland, but at other times uh, it it. Yeah, it, it's a very fulfilling field. I can imagine that small question being a much longer conversation. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's everyone's like eh, third question after you seeing someone again, like, oh, how's the weather or whatever. But yeah, you love to talk about weather. Love to talk about weather. Uh, you know, don't get me started on climate change. Uh, we'll go, we can go on and on and on about different things going on at the weather and climate system. But uh, <laughs> this job is actually perfect for me in that uh, I get to forecast the weather at week two timescales. And by the time it gets to me, uh, you know, I've largely forgotten what I forecasted, you know, a week and a half ago. Um, so it's new and uh, interesting all over again. Nice. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> yep. uh, so, Before we take off, obviously our jobs have a big impact on our lives, but we're also greatly impacted by the advice we might receive outside of the job environment. Um, So I'd like to ask you, what's one piece of advice? What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Personally, I think having a thick skin is one of those best pieces of advice that I've ever had. Um, Be able to take criticism without it impacting who you are as a person and you will be 
a much happier, a much more uh, content person uh, with the world. If you can just sit down and be like, hey, they're not taking it out on me. They're just criticizing what this, what's going on here and just let it roll off of you. Take what they're, take what they're saying and, you know, make, make changes so that you can improve, but don't take it straight to the heart and don't hate that person. <laughs> mm, yes. That's so good. Being able to stay true to yourself and watching yourself maybe become more of who you really are without being totally beaten down. I feel like that's, that's like maturity and adulthood summed up of what we should be aiming for in just becoming more refined without bringing other people down and just recognizing like we're here to support each other, even though it might not seem that way sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, even if somebody's criticizing your work, it, it may not be that they're disappointed in your, in your work. It may just be that, you know, they're, they're trying to make it better. And mm-hmm. so like, you know, making things better is a good thing and don't take it to heart if it's not perfect the first time. Like there are iterations of getting things better and better and better. Take the criticisms, take them well. People people really appreciate people that can be criticized without taking it personally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're teachable and trainable and adaptable and so many other good qualities if you can take criticism. So yep. that is a wonderful piece of advice. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for uh, joining me for this conversation. I really appreciated getting to hear about what it is you actually do at your job. Um, Again, it's one of those titles that people may assume they know something about, but actually don't know what the day-to-day looks like. So thank you again for uh, sharing what it looks like to have your job title. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for joining me this week. Being able to share your stories is what I love. We all have different journeys to get to where we are today. And for Ryan, he had been working towards this dream job for a long time and is so fulfilled in what he does. He gets to be part of something that provides information that makes a big impact within his expanding skill set and within his personality. I was continually reminded in this conversation, and especially with his last piece of advice, that there's always going to be something new to learn, and maybe someone new to learn from through feedback and constructive criticism. I think being able to approach both of those things and and problems with an open mind of learning can lead to success over time. Good life and job lessons. So if you care about your job and would like to share more about it, send me an email at Heidi at jobtitlepodcast.com or head to jobtitlepodcast.com for more information. Thanks again. Until next time.